I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we are combing through the celebrity memoirs and when we see something that makes sense, we say, hey, and when we see something that doesn't make sense, we comb our hair. And if you don't like our little Fawn's flourishes, you can smack a jukebox and walk out the door. Maybe shuffle it to the next song. But if you do like us, keep on listening. Excellent, Ashley. The search for remembering what it is that we do here, it continues to another week. We are so excited to come to you live from Spotify Studios in Los Angeles, California. We're honored to be here. It's our home away from home and we're in California. We're so excited to be recording our episode with a purple glow. The purple glow of Spotify's warmth. And if you want to catch us where else we're running around town, around the country, around the world, we are going to be in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. For February 15th, those, the perfect Galentine's or Valentine's Day date. Yeah, whoever you love. And also I hear it's the day after the hot chocolate festival of Vancouver ends, so... There's no excuse to be drinking hot chocolate at home because the hot chocolate's out of town. You should be at our show, Belly Full of Chocolate. (laughs) Still hot from the day before. Like you're a little thermos of a person. And then if you want to see us in Texas, we will be at Moon Tower Comedy Festival on April 18th. I am very excited to grab some queso. And I guess most of the time when we go places, the only thing I know of is foods. Also, (laughs) we have a very exciting Canada date coming to you guys. Next week, we'll be announcing it. It'll all be finalized. I'm so excited to tell you about it. It's like a little bit of a unique, different situation going on in MTL, my home city-in-law. The city Claire married into. Yeah. This week, we are talking about one Henry Winkler, who I have been calling Harry, which is silly because that's his dad. (laughs) Harry, that's my father. Call me Henry. (laughs) (laughs) But like literally, because we have different names and we're different people. And I've never met either. So why am I having such a hard time? That's tough stuff. Before we get into it, Claire, if your life was a memoir, how would you describe last week's chapter? There are no solutions. There are only newer problems. Fascinating. I have been wearing glasses that have prescriptions in them recently. I've been really (laughs) into being able to see because I don't know if my eyes have gotten worse or if my problem-solving skills have gotten worse, but I, like, went to Grand Central recently and I had to ask for help from an adult because I couldn't see where I was going. Like, I could not read the signs. I did not know where the subway was. I get into an airport and I just sit on the ground and I go, check me in like my oversized baggage because I can't figure my way around here. And so I've been wearing glasses and it's opened up a whole new world of like words far away from me. And I love it. I love wearing glasses. And like the other day I was just walking around going, how incredible. I can see the whole world and I don't even notice there's something on my face. Okay. It was actually so crazy because this is my first time driving around Los Angeles like with contacts in. And the last two times I've been here, the first time I've been back in LA with glasses on, And it is, like, fucking insane to me that I can drive around and, like, you have enough clarity to, like, read a sign that you're passing and then keep driving to the next sign. And, like, you're not putting all of your focus into reading every sign because I used to be like, wow, if only I knew what stores I was driving by when I drive by them. But you can't, like, focus on a store sign and then focus back to the street. Yeah, you can't hard squint and kind of do the yo-yo of head nods to try to get, get it in focus. And, like, the change for me of driving with glasses on and, like, knowing what was around me as I was driving, it just, it's a whole new ballgame. I cannot believe you are the person who drives around the most. Um, Anyway, so I've loved wearing glasses. I've loved being able to see. But so I thought solution. And now I'm learning about the world of, like, glasses-inspired acne. (laughs) Inspired. (laughs) I think it's where I got the idea. 
Like to have a pimple behind my ear is something I never once encountered before. And I've been like, what is going on back there? And then I had truly, you know, those cluster rings where they take a bunch of different little gemstones and put them in one gunk of silver. I had that, but between my eyebrows and with acne. I had Oof. such a cluster I of acne that was like never going away. It just came back at different strengths. It was just like always present, but changing and in form. And I was like, where is this coming from? And then I went glasses. And then suddenly I'm like, okay, sure, you can see now, Claire, but at what cost? And it's kind of fun to be like, well, what will I do now to fix my glasses acne? That's going to ruin my life in a way I never could have foreseen. <laughs> I guess it's in some ways nice that if you have acne around the rim of where your glasses be when you wear glasses, you cover it up. Yeah, nobody can see. But once I take those glasses off, your skin is just like red and raw and falling off the bone. There's like a bridge of pimples right around my nose. And it starts down here. It's almost like I'm having an allergic reaction to the glasses. Everywhere the glasses touch is pimple now. <laughs> Based on your freaky deaky sensitive skin, I actually would not write off an allergic reaction to the glasses. <laughs> well, we'll solve that next time on <laughs> What Fresh Hell. <laughs> Ashley, if you were a celebrity and you were writing a memoir about last week, what would you title it? I don't have a good chapter for this week because I do feel like every return trip to Los Angeles is like an incremental step up in my vague self-confidence. Do you know what I mean? But I feel like I say this every I time we come here. I love that chapter, an incremental step up in my vague self-confidence. <laughs> I'm not like walking back here like the king of the castle, but every time I'm back in LA, I feel like a little bit better about my confidence in what we create. Does that make sense? Every time I'm Crystal back here, clear. I go... Like I'm wearing glasses. <laughs> That's how I feel when I hear what you're saying. And it's crazy because when I left LA as a resident, I just felt like such a spiraling failure that to come back every time feeling like a little bit stronger and a little bit bolder and better, it's nice. I'm so it's proud pleasant. of you. It's cool. And I still, every single street we drive down, because I left here like spiraling in failure of comedy... I mean, I wasn't failing. I could have stayed here for a long time. I was actually doing fine out here, but I just felt like nothing in my life was like going well. And so because I was doing comedy, which is just for the most part, the indie scene is located in every closet around town. Every single street we drive down, I'm like, that is a place I had a mental breakdown. And it is crazy to be like, and now it's a place that I feel like I belong. I say I used to have that too. I just stopped going to Manhattan. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes you have to take your cry streets, put them in a box, and just say, I can't go to the east side anymore. I feel like your biggest mentee bees were Upper East Side centralized, and like, who would ever go there anyway? And so I feel like it's avoidable, whereas on the 101, if you come to LA, you have to drive down the 101. Absolutely. You know, I'm getting better at it. Should we get into Being Henry, The Fonz, and Beyond by Henry Winkler? Is that what this book is called? I Lost the Jacket. Yeah, it is. Say it again for me. Being Henry, the Fonz, and beyond. So Henry Winkler, for those of you who don't know, played the Fonz on the famous television program Happy Days. Something incredible is that I could not have come up with the name Happy Days, but I did know the name the Fonz, and I did know he went, hey. And I think for a TV show that ended 10 years before I was even born to still be relevant, that is kind of iconic. It's so iconic. People know the Fonz. Can I tell you another thing? You know how he talks about his cast on Happy Days? Tom Bosley played like his friend's dad. That is my grandma's cousin. I'm actually a Nepo baby. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you've been reading this book and turning it around all week and you didn't even tell me that we had connections in this city. Well, it's because um, he is dead. 
but surely he has an estate. <laughs> Call the keeper of the estate. Yeah, I have some showbiz on that side of the family. And also, I am distantly related. <laughs> I am distantly related to the creator of the television franchise, Sharknado. I knew that because he came to our show in Chicago. And if he's listening, we'd love to make Sharknado bitchnesses. Can you imagine the tornado of sharks and bitchnesses? <laughs> Two bitches who tried running a business, but I got swept away in a sharknado. What will they do next? <laughs> I would love to watch that visually explain the idea of a web series getting lost in a tornado of sharks. Because what is a web series besides a personal failure? <laughs> but again, how do you depict that literally? With a tornado of sharks. <laughs> <laughs> bitchnesses was my sharknado. <laughs> okay, the Fonz. So Henry Winkler was born in 1945, and this book came out last year, 2023, so he's 78. That's so old when you think about it. Yeah, but, like, also, in a way, young, because, like, wow, you've been on Earth for so fucking long, but you can, like, def pack another 20 on there. When you count up from 178 is quite high. When you count backwards... From infinity, 78 is so low to the ground. That's so true. And that's the way you need to think about age. <laughs> sure, but what if you're the first person to live forever? Then it's actually quite early in your life, no matter where you are. And I fear every day that we're coming closer to living forever. I'm not doing that. You know how I feel about that. <laughs> Tuck Everlasting did a number on me. <laughs> so it opens with, it was the biggest audition of my life. The sweat stains under my arms weren't just clearly visible. They were a cry for help. That's a good impression. Thank you so much. The morning is Tuesday. It's October 1973. He's in the Paramount Studios auditioning for the Fonz. He is, as he says, a short little dork. And he's trying out for this character that's supposed to be like the badass greaser in town, the cool older brother. And he goes, how am I going to play this part? And he shows up. And out of nowhere, a voice comes from deep within him. And he goes, hey. And it's so powerful. And it comes from so deep within his heart. That he knocks the socks off the casting director. He knocks the socks off himself. He says, I don't even know who that was in there. And he also makes this acting decision. He goes, in this scene, I'm going to make my scene partner sit down. With, like, confidence. Yes. I'm going to bowl him over with my own sense of self. Yes. He does bowl that man over with his sense of self, and he's the Fonz. He becomes the Fonz forever, but who was I really? And that's always been the big question. And it's taken me 50 years to realize that there really is a me inside of me. If you asked me back then, I would have told you all I knew at the time. Henry Franklin Winkler, formerly of 210 West 78th Street, the son of Harry and Ilsa, younger brother of B. So basically, he goes back to his childhood. He grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan in a beautiful pre-war apartment, it sounds like. They had a gorgeous home. Yeah, but like only two proper bedrooms and one sort of broom closet, which is where he got to live. Yeah. Well, a maid's quarter. Can I say... Yeah. I bet they lived in a standard like four bedroom apartment with a maid's quarters. And they just made him sleep. Yeah, there for some, anyway. they probably had like a music room. Yeah. Like I have a feeling they had more than two real bedrooms. They just were mean to him. Yeah. So one of the big running through lines of this book and his life is that his parents were not very supportive of him. And one of the big issues is that he was not good in school because he could not read. Yeah. My mother was small, round, and often sad. I would gradually discover what she was sad about. She was also often angry. She was triggered by dust. And I don't mean dust on the floor. If dust floated by, she was off on a rant. He does not like his parents. They were very mean to him. He later found out he was dyslexic, but they were very cruel to him about his grades. They called him Dummerhund, which means dumb dog in German. And it seems like they were pretty cruel to him in a way that he has not yet forgiven at 78 years of living or at present of writing this book. That being said, I will say they escaped the Holocaust, and so I understand why his mom maybe was sad. 
Yeah, so his dad worked in lumber, and in the early 1940s, his dad lied to his mom and said he had a business trip in America that they had to go to because she was not willing to leave Germany as the Nazis were progressing. And they left on this business trip and never went back, and everyone they knew died. And she never forgave him for lying to her. She wished she had been there to die with her family. And I'm just kind of like, I understand that it was still like, you know, that doesn't change that you were struggling in school and they were very hard on you about it. But they were going through some stuff. I get why your mom was angry. Everybody she'd ever known had died. And she'd like been lied to in the escape. They like left a very comfortable, beautiful, I guess it wasn't gonna be comfortable and beautiful for long, but like. He had taken all their jewels and, like, hid them in a box of chocolates. Not even in a box of chocolates. He, like, had a large bar of chocolate that he melted and then re-hardened around the jewelry so that he could smuggle jewelry out of Germany with them to America. And this was, like, before, obviously, the borders were, like, super cracked down. That way they were able to start a small business and rebuild his lumber business in America. That's just not the life she wanted. But nevertheless, he was bad at school. He was dyslexic, and it was very hard at home. You are not trying hard enough. You are not concentrating. Stay in your room. You cannot go out on weekends. You cannot go to temple dance. No TV. Dumber hund. One of my father's favorite expressions was the ton fait la musique. The tone makes the music. Meaning, it's not so much the words that you say as the way you say them. Which, since he and my mother used to scream at me all the time, tells you a lot about my mother and father. He is a very charismatic kid. He talks about just having this enormous insecurity. But one of the things that comes through in this book is that he does not know the way he comes across because he does not come across as insecure and fearful. I'm sure he was. Like, I'm sure... The loudest kid is always the scaredest kid, but he is so energetic and charismatic. He talks about this one story where he is like running late for school and he has finals. And so he gets on the bus, the bus he takes every day, and he asks if they'll run express. He says, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I am the future and I'm late for my midterms. I can't fail. Does anybody have to get off between now and 63rd Street? Can we speed down and get me to my exams on time? Can I see a show of hands? And they usher him to school on time and he gets there and still flunks his exams but he flunked on time i can't remember not feeling an intense need to perform he would like do plays for his family he was always trying to be the center of attention trying to showcase just trying to feel seen and heard meanwhile his parents were constantly grounding him constantly yelling at him that he wasn't smart they were very ashamed of him he wanted to be cool and have friends so bad at school where i was failing at everything i was always running after the cool kids trying to get into cliques always just out of reach of making it I would go up to them at the beginning of the school year and say, I've changed over the summer. I'm better. I'm so much better. Thinking about it now, that must have made me look like an alien. What the hell is he saying? Better than what? I mean, that is so funny. He was getting kicked off of everything. He was kicked off the swim team for eating breakfast and puking in the pool. At one point, (laughs) he goes to like a boarding school in Switzerland for the summer and like he tips the crew team over because he puts the ore the wrong way. Like he's just like always getting kicked out of everything. He's always causing a ruckus. It's very, can I say, he is extremely Charlie Brown to me. Yes. He's so funny. He only has one teacher that's nice to him. It's his theater teacher. And he says, Winkler, if you ever do get out of here, you're going to be great. (laughs) And I will say, he almost didn't get out of there. He had to take geometry four times plus summer school. He applied to 25 schools and only got into two. But I can't believe he got into two. He like never passed a class. His family also lived way beyond their means. They had a summer home upstate in the Adirondacks. They had this beautiful apartment. And they, like, lived a very fancy, well-dressed, heavily furnished life. It wasn't until he was a bit older that he started to understand that they were often struggling. And he would hear his dad on the phone begging his friends to lend them money one more time. At one point, he takes all of Henry's bar mitzvah money. He ends up having a lot of financial insecurities because he's very aware of the stress 
that money caused on their family and what overspending can do. He's like my father who would scream and yell and demand that everyone stand up when he entered a room. I would see him on the phone crying, begging for money. And I think it was just like very imprinting upon him. It, it was very impactful on him. My last favorite childhood story, because I just said this book really started out with a lot of like funny stories that very much endear you to him or endear him to you. And I laughed out loud multiple times. I mean, that story about him being like, I've changed. I'm better. I'm like, oh, I've been there. It reminded me so much of you just like having this like narrative in your head and then going up and the people around you being like, what is she talking about? She just isn't our friend. <laughs> I could try again. I think I've adapted. I've taken the feedback and I've changed. My pants are different now. These are the cool pants. I'm wearing them. Can't you see? <laughs> Let me in. <laughs> Let me in, please. Anyway, so he loses his virginity. Him and this girl take a bus home. My parents were not home. My sister was gone. He was so excited. I am vibrating, and I do not know how to get undressed in front of her, so I go behind the drapes, and now I'm undressing. Not so easy behind drapes. Meanwhile, she is very comfortable undressed in the bed smiling. Something about losing your virginity and going behind the, like, creating a changing room behind the drapes is so funny to me. <laughs> it really got me. So he goes to Emerson. He has a really hard time learning lines for acting class, mainly because he can't read. The problem is he's so charming and he's so good at improv. Not being able to learn lines does not catch up to him for years and years and years and years and years because oftentimes he's in such a character and he's improvising in such a way that not saying the exact words on the page turns out kind of fine and better even. Yeah, and then he ends up going to the Yale School of Drama, which is very impressive. He went with a Shakespeare monologue he was going to perform. And then he forgot the monologue and he just said something that he felt sounded Shakespearean. And he just like went with it and they were like, you're in, buddy, which, damn. What? I guess he's so talented or the standards were so low. It's really one of those Can things say, that's hard to say in the 70s. I really believe it was a strong combination because there is something about some of these books we read where people... I don't know if they're just being flippant, and I don't know if maybe people just didn't know before the age of the internet that if you asked, you might get in. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying anyone who went is not talented, but, like, I don't know. Even thinking back to my origin story in trying to do comedy and stuff, it just never occurred to me that anyone could just, like, try to be on the creative side. I thought you had to be chosen in some way. I didn't know you could just start writing and start doing stand-up and start figuring shit just out for podcasting yourself. podcasting until people gave up and listened. I didn't know. I was like, how did Jerry Seinfeld get his TV show? They must have asked him. I, I saw him know. on a bus and they said, that's one funny dude. Oh, my God. I don't know. It just never occurred to me that you could, like, try to do it. And so I wonder what the application process was like even 40, 50 years before that, when who could have known that you could just try to do it? So he has very funny actor studio stories. Dude, acting class, we've said it once, we've said it a million times, is the craziest place in the world. <laughs> he has an acting lesson from Stella Adler, who's very famous, has a school named after her. And she shows up and is trying to get them to imagine a garden. And so she's like, well, what do you see? And she doesn't believe he sees anything, which is such a funny thing to tell someone about their own mind's eye. And she's like, sit down. He goes, I see bluebells. She goes, you don't see anything. But I couldn't stop. Hey, the tulips over there, they're variegated. Down, Winkler. That threw me down into a terrorized tizzy. I was so sure I was going to get thrown out of the school for going up against Stella Adler. And she's like, he's like, how does she know that I didn't see variegated tulips? And it, to this day, he's pissed about it. There are a handful of grudges he carries with him where I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I just feel like the beginning of this book is so laden with all the good stories. And then it kind of peters out at the end. 
But everything that is endearing about him is him being young, having no idea how he comes across. And he has this girlfriend that he's obsessed with and he's always like waiting by the phone at a payphone in the rain for her to call him back. And at one point she breaks up with him by just saying, I have to leave. I can't be here for one more minute. I asked her why. The way you are, it's horrible. (laughs) What way was I? I had no idea what she was talking about, which of course was at least half the problem. So he begins his professional acting career, earning $173 a week doing story theater in East Hampton. Then Cliff Robertson, who is a movie actor, saw him at the play in East Hampton and asked him to be in a Western he was about to star in, The Great Northfield, Minnesota Raid. But then he said no because he was like, there's no understudies in my East Hampton play. If I don't go, they can't do the play. He takes theater so seriously, and I really respect that about him. He is a Yale-trained actor, and he he really sees it as a craft and an art form. He's not just in it to be a handsome face on a five-foot-four man. He's in it to become a thespian. You think he's five-foot-four? Close. Wow, that's little. He does have this story, which I really like. Every once in a while, I see something, that I'm like, I'll take that with me. He's in a play where they have to pretend to be deer, and the person he's playing next to is a prima ballerina for the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, which is very intense. He's like, how am I going to be a deer the way you're a deer? Like, you're a fucking prima ballerina and I'm a Henry Winkler. And she just goes, each of us in our own being, in our own body, you will be a different kind of deer. That unlocked a way of thinking that had never occurred to me and became one of my watchwords, a different kind of deer. And I do think that that is such a good thing to take with you. Like, how could I do it the way they do it? You won't. You'll just do it differently. You'll do it your way. Yeah. There is no right way for a human being to be a deer. So then he gets another play in D.C. where he gets fired very quickly and it turns out they had another actor that they were just waiting for them to become available and they needed someone as a placeholder during rehearsals. This is a story just to get the word out that Alan Schneider was a dick. I don't know who Alan Schneider was, but if he was your grandma's cousin, be ashamed. Yikes, uh, yikes, yikes, yikes. He just has a couple stories where it's very important for him to be like, this guy fucking sucks. And I respect that he names names. And I respect that he waits for them to die. He's like, I get that they can't fight back, but people need to know. People need to know. And can I say, if you're still carrying this kind of anger this far along in your life, I guess shout it from the fucking rooftops. Why not? Maybe this was therapeutic. Maybe he's different now. He starts auditioning for TV commercials, which from the Yale School of Drama is a big no-no. But he needs money, and that is a lot more powerful to him than like what is highly respected by the Yale School of Drama. Yeah, they see him as a hack, that that's not what they went to art school for, that they're like, he's a sellout, basically. And he's like, they'd always call me and say, how could you do it? And then immediately be like, but how are you getting those ads? And he says, even the Yale School of Drama called him to say that they were ashamed of what he was doing with himself, but also could he donate some money? Yeah. He ends up getting a movie pretty early on called The Lords of Flatbush. And suddenly he's working every day. He's a working actor. Every single day he wakes up and From 6 in the morning until 5 in the evening, he's shooting a film. And he's part of this improv group that just, like, works out in somebody's apartment. But he loves it. You know, he goes and shoots all day and then goes to the apartment and does improv all night to do experimental theater. He's really living the life. And then somebody says something to him and says, if you want to be known in New York, stay here. If you want to be known to the world, go to California. And he doesn't know what to do. I'm a world-class agonizer, so I did what I was good at. I agonized. Should I go? Could I go? But finally, as always happens and still happens, when I spin my mental wheels like that, I got so fed up and bored with myself that I said to myself, just shut up and jump off the fucking precipice and fly. I mean, you can talk yourself out of anything. What are you doing? Go. Just go. This is actually really good advice. And I feel like this is the advice that, like, I've leaned on for a lot of my big life decisions where I'm like, if you just sit there and weigh the options for too long, you can pick anything. So just do something. Yeah. September 18th, 1973, 10 a.m., I got on an American Airlines plane at Kennedy Airport and flew to Los Angeles. 
He gets there and just goes straight to his agent's office. And she's like, don't you want to get an apartment? And he's like, no, I want to get a job. And she goes, well, I didn't really tell you to come here. She's pissed. She's like, you're not going to do well here. You're not a good looking man. <sighs> Immediately, he's like, this was a $3,000 mile, $1,000 mistake. He says, should I go back? And she goes, I don't know. Just get a place to live and then make big decisions. So he calls up a friend of his from acting school who at one point had said, if you need somewhere to stay, or a friend from Emerson, I think, had said, if you need somewhere to stay when you're in L.A., like, call me up. And he calls her up and says, I'd like to come stay with you. And she's like, oh. And she's living in a studio with her boyfriend. He's living in, like, a vestibule there. Yeah. And one day he walks in on them having sex. And by walks in on them having sex, I mean, they were all sharing a room. Yeah. He's, like, sleeping in the closet, I think. Yeah. And so then he's like, I'll find another person to squat with. And sure enough, he finds another family to overstay his welcome with. But very quickly, he is getting auditions. He gets a walk-on part for the Mary Tyler Moore show, and he goes and he improvs his lines as he's off to do because he can't read. And they like it so much, they get, take him from four lines to eight. And sure enough, he does so well that word travels fast. He says the way things happen in Hollywood is not that you meet the right person at the right time. It's that you meet the right person who knows the right person who knows the right person who knows the right person. And because he did so well at the Mary Tyler Moore show, the casting director was also casting for a new pilot called Happy Days. The casting director talked to the friend and everyone kind of conversed at a party right after his Mary Tyler Moore episode had aired. And he was kind of a hit in that episode. And so he was like top of mind with the people who were casting the next big thing. Here's the amazing thing I said to Joan Scott when she told me about the audition. I don't know. I told her, I don't think I want to do a series. And she goes, what? And basically, she goes, Henry, let me tell you something, my dear. You've been in Los Angeles for less than a week. You've already gotten one big job, and you're being asked to try it for another. Other young actors would kill to have this kind of good fortune you're having. If looks could kill, the look she gave me would have dropped me on the spot. And then he becomes the Fonz. Gary told me later, Gary Marshall, that the network was not convinced about me after the audition, but he said, trust me, this kid is good. I'm going to use him. And so it was that on October 30th, 1973, my 28th birthday, I got off the phone with Tom Miller. Would you like to play the part? I said, yes, I would. I would like that very much. So the thing about Happy Days was it was supposed to be about Ron Howard, who was supposed to be the star, and Henry Winkler was supposed to be like random episode comedic relief. He was the older brother who was there, and very quickly he is a breakout sensation. Within weeks of the show airing, he can't go to the grocery store without getting recognized, and then the people he's crashing with are like, you cannot live on our couch anymore. This is actually insane that you're the star of a TV show. The problem is he hates it. He, again, thinks this is not really what I set up to do. This was back in the day when TV shows and movies were very separate. He feels embarrassed about the character he's playing. He gets offered the role of Grease, Danny Zuko. And he knew right away that he would be struggling against typecasting for the rest of his life. Although he was appreciative, I think from the get-go, he felt like he deserved more. And that's, of course, how you act when you get something right away. You don't realize how fucking lucky you are to be working at all. Yeah, I do feel like a big part of this is that he doesn't understand that being like a month in to Los Angeles and getting cast as the star of a TV show that runs for 10 years. I don't know that he realized for another like 40 years what a big deal that was and how much he could have just wasted away on his friend's couch. I will say there are certain elements of it that I think he goes a bit far and there are certain elements of it where I think he was right to be wary of pigeonholing himself as one character. Because he refuses to be the Fonz when he sees people out and about. He's like, I'm excited that they recognize me as the Fonz, but I'm not just going to, like, say A on command. If you meet me in public, I will say hi to anyone, but I will be Henry. So it was early 1974. Happy Days was on the air. I was earning a nice salary, $1,000 a week, as much as I had brought 
to, out to me to last a month, and I started to get famous, but not just famous, famous. I'd suddenly become very good-looking, by which I mean that girls, women, who would have never given me the time of day before I became the Fonz, were now ready and willing to tell me what time of day it was, and more and more and more. But then I had to worry. Why are they saying yes? Is it because I'm such a cutie or because I'm a TV star? It was impossible to figure out. Meanwhile, the girlfriend who had dumped him weeks before the Fonz existed is now like, should we give it another go? Yeah. He's very proud of himself for saying no, and he thinks it's because he's more mature now by not taking back that girl. But I am like, well, if you have every other girl in America knocking at your door, could that have been a factor? I listened to my instinct when it came to work, but when it came to living, I almost always smothered my instincts and let my fears and anxieties take over. The days just got crazier and crazier. The writers were picking up on the Fonz's popularity. They were bouncing off me, and I was bouncing off them. In the pilot, I had just six lines. Soon I had a lot more to say besides my trademark A and a lot more to do, too. So now comes the problem, which was that he was not supposed to be the star, but very quickly he was. And I think that was very hard for the other people, specifically Ron Howard, who thought they were the star. Who were, was cast as the star. Oh, my God. He is still bitter about when some of his improvisations didn't make it to the show. Apparently, at one point, he was supposed to be saying grace, and he improvised, hey, God, whoa. <sighs> and then I guess the creator of the show or someone at the network was religious and was like, this is sacrilegious. You can't say that. And so he has to redo the scene, and he's, I guess, still bitter about it because it's in his book. The Fonz came together out of little details like that, small, unspoken things. He was a man of few words, but he could say a lot with a look. There was a little problem rattling around in my brain. Well, there were a lot of problems running through my brain, but there was this one problem rattling like a dried pea in a tin can. I was still a Yale-trained theater actor, and I wanted the world to know about everything I could do besides say A. And so he takes like a lot of pride and that he went to Yale and he's insistent upon never bringing out the fawns outside of TV shows. So he's like, anytime I was interviewed, I not only showed up as Henry Winkler thespian, but I brought up that I went to Yale. And he's like, anytime I was offered a gig being in character off TV, I said, absolutely no, because I knew that I had to keep the magic alive and keep him off limits. But the problem was the harder I was to get, the more of me they wanted. What a strange secret to be carrying around when you're supposed to be the coolest guy in the world. I wasn't trying to be better than anyone else. I was just trying to be my best self, which in itself was problematic because I was, in my mind, always a little boy without any real handle on who my adult self was. Another thing, he has like a real chip on his shoulder, a real problem when it comes to inclusion and adulthood. He needs to have his hand held a lot. He talks about the first time he was on the Mary Tyler Moore show when they broke for lunch and he didn't know where to go and everyone just left the soundstage and went to lunch and no one kind of stopped and said, hey, this is where you go to lunch. And he's like, I vowed that would never happen to anyone on my set again. And on one hand, you're like, it is very admirable that you're so conscious of whether or not people like know what's going on, whether they feel included, whether they feel secure. But on the other hand, like, try, try yeah. to just figure it out yourself. And he does kind of take <laughs> accountability. He's like, no, I recognize that I was an adult and it was nobody's job to tell me I could have just said, where should I go for lunch? But he's like, but I vowed never to make somebody feel the way I feel. I was a star everywhere I went, and yet I realized I still couldn't do geometry. I was still short. I hadn't grown an inch. So I thought, I'll let them think I'm a big star, but I'm not really a different human being. I cannot really be exactly what everybody is saying I am. There's a bit of a hollow sound inside. My character had become bigger, much bigger than the character the show had originally been based on. I could never take it all seriously. I could never believe that I was a big star as they said I was. On the other hand, I was loving that they, the fans, the media, the network executives were saying it. This is when the network starts kind of tipping the scales towards the Fonz. They had a huge first season. They took a major nosedive the second season. And then they started seeding the Fonz in as more of a main character. And things took off. 
And then they just started making it known. They were like, this is not the way the call sheet was originally ordered. This is not the original order of stardom. This is the way the show is adjusting. He was like one of the supporting characters. And then when you're for Christmas, they got everyone, including Ron Howard, who was originally the main character, wallets. And then they got Henry Winkler, like a huge ass fancy like TV and VCR, which at that time was super expensive. And Ron Howard mailed his wallet back to the network and was like, no thanks. It also is changing his relationship with his parents. His parents have gone now from being ashamed that he's an actor to very proud of him as an actor. But he's like, they weren't proud for me. They were proud that they could claim me and that I was now worldwide known. He says that he was just getting calls from moms that he used to know from Temple saying, can I take you out to lunch? And he's like, mom, you have to stop giving my number out. That his parents ended up selling merch with his face on it. His sister ended up doing a book of his childhood photos. It's just, he feels very exploited. Very much like these people who never supported me are suddenly now not even happy for me. They're just using it. They're happy for themselves that they get to know be him. a wash in the glow of fame. Yeah, he has a real problem with the fact that the first time his parents have ever like been nice to him is when he is famous. It's also creating a bit of a rift between him and Ron Howard because they were like very close. Ron is about 10 years younger than him, but they had a real big brother, little brother relationship. And with him, Fonz kind of taken over the show from him and Ron Howard in every interview being asked, how does it feel that Fonzie has taken over your show? There is just a natural resentment that starts to build. And I think Henry does everything he can to hack at it. He says he would like sometimes straight up ask him, how are you doing? And be like, by the way, they came to me. They want to change the show to the Fonz's happy days. And I told them no. And he's like, yeah, I told them if they did that, I'll quit. And so I think Henry is always trying to acknowledge that he sees what's going on and he wants to show respect. And Ron, even though he was 10 years younger, was the established actor with years of child acting under his belt. Ron is always like, I'm going to leave and become a director. And Henry's like, I support you and I think you should. And I hope one day to work with you as a director. And Ron does say, basically, we know it's not your fault. You haven't changed the way you acted. You don't act like an asshole. We know that just it is how the cookie crumbles. The problem is the way that the network treats me like shit. Yeah. I can't believe they're having this mature of a conversation and I like have to know if it actually went down like this because Ron really is very maturely saying like, I know that it's not your fault, but sometimes I feel a little bit mad at you just because you are the face of the thing that is gnawing at me and I love you, but it's a lot sometimes. And I'm like, that is impressive because it's very truthful to be like, I was the star of a hit TV show and now you're the star of my hit TV show and I know it's not your fault, but I'm like pissed. But even in the midst of happy days, at the height of my fame and success, I felt embarrassed and inadequate. Every Monday at 10 o'clock, we would have a table read of the week's script, and every reading, I would lose my place or stumble. I would leave a word out, a line out I was constantly failing to give the right cue line, which would then screw up the joke for the person doing the scene with me, or I would be staring at a word like invincible and have no idea on earth how to pronounce it. Then he goes to a clothing store and meets a banging hot redhead named Stacy, and he asks her out, and she already has kind of a boyfriend, but she's like, yeah. He was persistent and, like, charming. And she's and nice. like, and it was time for me to stop dating that guy anyway, so I thought this is a good out. There's a cute little back-and-forth chapter where he talks about how they met. She talks about how they met. She grew up in L.A., so she's not super impressed by him being a celebrity, but she's not, like, unaware. She knows how to act. Like, she's not coveting him because he's a celebrity, but she knows how to be around people who are very famous. She also has an ex-husband and a son. He had never seen himself as a stepdad, but he very quickly falls in love with Stacy and Jed. They also have this crazy experience where they come home from, I think, their third date, and her ex is, like, hiding in the bushes in his underwear. He also isn't a perfect stepdad right out the gate. He says the first time he meets the little boy Jed, who's four, 
he shows up and is like, oh my God, the Fonz is at my house. And he goes, my name is not Fonzie. My name is Henry. Would you like it if I called you Ralph? <laughs> I was very intense in those days, quite Germanic and serious. Even though comedy was my beat, you wouldn't think it to look at me, but I was. How intense to tell, to be like mad at a four-year-old for not knowing the difference between TV and reality. Seems like they're still close to this day, so I guess it went fine. It went fine. Four-year-olds are quite forgiving. Do you know something very cute about Henry and Stacy? is they like love having couples friends. They have more couples. It's very 70s, I feel. It's very 70s. So he loves Ron Howard, his TV brother. I think he's Bryce Dallas Howard's godfather. Henry is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought you no, said Ron, and I was like, no, 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 father, father. Yeah, and then, <laughs> like, they love each other so much that they're actually legally bound to one another. Yes. And we both feel the same. I'm godfather to Ron and Cheryl's lovely daughter, Bryce, a very talented actress. Can I tell you something? I went on Bryce Dallas Howard's IMDb because I, I just was, like, very talented actress. Isn't she, like, a hugely successful actress? Yes. And one of the trivias on Ron Howard's is that all of his four children are in some way named after the city they were conceived in. And I was like, ew, Ron. Also not somehow, just like name, like Dallas. Or do they have sex in Bryce Canyon? No, no, no. Somehow in that, like one of the kids is named Carlisle because they fucked in the Carlisle Hotel. So it's like not necessarily the city itself, but it's like in some way associated by the location. People love doing that. It is one of my least favorite things. I have to agree. <laughs> Imagine every time you introduce yourself at like a job opportunity, you're like, yes. My parents did shtup in Dallas. <laughs> have my parents ever been to Dallas? Um, <laughs> have I been to Dallas? Only in the umbilical cord. Pretty significant railing happened in Dallas one time. <laughs> he does get to know Jed way better. And he's like, oh, he was like a lively human being who was a child and not just like a thing that was there. And it's like, well, Yeah. That's what kids are. He talks about his harrowing experience as a child having a dog for a few weeks and him and the dog were in love and the dog would jump into the pond and save him if he thought that Henry was drowning. And one time he thought he lost the dog. The dog came and ran up and like put his little head in his little lap through tears. And not long after that, my parents gave Dervin away. It would be better if she lived on a farm, they said. The hole in my heart lingered into my adulthood and I knew no little dog could ever fill it. He then goes on to describe every dog he ever had, which is like 12. That's a lot. They had a lot of dogs in his adult life. Yeah, they always had like two to three at a time, and it's been like 45 years. So, <laughs> also, all of his kids individually, when they got older, got dogs, and then he would babysit those dogs when his kids would go on vacation because none of his kids left LA. And so, at any given time, there was like even more dogs. Stacy talks about how great Henry was with Jed at the beginning. But she's worried that they spoiled him because of the divorce. And then she says Henry was so great at like playing and being present. But she didn't realize how hard it would be for him to open up emotionally. I knew that acting was going to be the priority for Henry over almost everything. I knew he needed that to be fulfilled or feel alive. But I also thought that there was going to be a separation between his acting life and his real life. It took me a long time to realize that that separation was a very elusive thing. But he does give Henry credit for being a very stable figure in Judd's life and saying, like, Judd never felt insecure around Henry because he always knew Henry would be back. Whereas with his dad, his biological dad he was a bit more manic because their relationship was a little bit more elusive then henry tells this story about going to summer camp as a kid and how every week they would have like this tribal meeting where somebody would be deemed the silent one for the week and they had to be silent all week and every time you talk they put a notch in your twig and if your twig had more than four notches you like couldn't play games 
And it seems like he was often picked to be the twig guy. <laughs> it seems like he never really played games. Verbose, guilty. I talked too much when I was anxious and I was anxious all the time. And never really having felt heard, I had my own difficulty hearing others. I'm sorry, but I cannot believe children existed before like 1995. The idea that you would send your child to a camp where he was told you can't talk for a week. That is an insane game that they play. Like, that is so clear. Like, teenagers were just like, this kid is so annoying. New rule. You don't talk. Most annoying kid can't talk for a week. That's crazy. I was a camp counselor, and we used to play the quiet game on the bus all the time. He will say that's where he learned to water ski. And as you may know, famously, water skiing was a big part of the world's worst episode of TV where the Fonz jumps over a shark, and that becomes a phrase that means, like, when your favorite TV show gets bad. It's so crazy the way that that has reverberated almost as significantly as A. Yeah. Jump the shark. Jump the shark is such an important phrase in TV. And he talks about the way that that one guy profited off of it, the guy who invented it's roommate. Yeah. And he is like, I don't begrudge him for making money off of an idea. But that episode wasn't even that bad. And Happy Days actually stayed good for another, like, three years. It got bad later. And it's like, okay, Henry, I believe you. He says even though season five was mostly known for jumping the shark, it also introduced everybody in the world to a little guy named Robin Williams, who he said was an absolute genius and was so good as his walk-on one-episode character that he ended up getting the spinoff Mork and Mindy, where he plays an alien. Okay, this is a crazy encounter. At one point, he runs into Paul McCartney in the road, and Paul McCartney is just as excited to talk to Henry Winkler as Henry Winkler is to talk to Paul McCartney, and they have this great conversation. And at one point, a fan walks up and is like, oh, my God, the Fonz and Paul McCartney having a conversation. Can I stand here? And Paul McCartney is like, no. <laughs> and he's like, wow, Paul McCartney's so cool. And Paul McCartney gives Henry his phone number and is like, call me. We should hang out sometime. So he calls 17 times. And he's like, he never really wanted to hang out. I think I scared him off. He is obsessed with being part of the cool group. I mean, to the day he dies, which will be later in his life from now on. <laughs> he's just like always trying to get somebody to hang out with him. It's really hard for him to be present and appreciate what he has. He's always trying to figure out who's excluding him and how to wiggle in. And it is just so crazy because I think that there are plenty of people who would look at the Fonz and Ron Howard and their wives having a vacation together and be like, that's the club I want to be in. Yeah. But he is like, will Paul McCartney talk to me? And the answer was yes. The answer was yes until you shoot yourself in the foot. It is crazy the way he as an adult man and at this point a famous man but later just an older and still famous man never can let go of the concept that there is like one sturdy pod of cool kids like there is no cool club ever in the world in high school it was a lie like it's always a lie and it comes up in his marriage yeah. he's like true i was charming but emotionally speaking i was like fucked up I need you to be intimate, Stacey would say to me. It didn't compute. I didn't even know the definition of intimate. Sometimes in sheer exasperation, I would say, what the fuck are you even asking me? What? Tell me what intimate means, and I'll tell you if I even know how to do it. I said, I'm earning a living. We're living in a nice house. I'm polite. What's the problem? I was unavailable, not knowing I was unavailable. My insecurities were always threatening to run rampant. He would, like, imagine that he offended somebody. He tells this story about thinking that he offended Jim Brooks, who was the co-creator of The Simpsons, and he didn't even know what he had said. And it was completely something he had made up in his mind, that he was like, I was at this party and I think I said something wrong. I don't know what it would have been. I can't remember what I said. But he's like, it was like a boa constrictor at night. Just I couldn't even breathe. I'd be up all night being like, I've ruined my life. I've offended this man. And finally at 1130 p.m., his wife, Stacy, just calls every hotel in San Francisco to try to find this man so that <laughs> Henry Winkler can get on the phone and say, did I offend you? And the guy's like, when would you have offended me? And he's like, I, I don't know. That's what I'm asking. And he's like, nope. And he's like, okay. 
Well, that's a burden off my shoulders. But he's like, I always found something like that that I just was sure I had messed up. It was up. a lesson he never learned. So him and Stacey end up getting married. And he's like, my parents were nice to her randomly. That doesn't mean that they were good people. They just like figured one little thing out. And then he's doing this movie and he auditions Meryl Streep to star alongside of him. And he is like head over bananas for her. He's like, this is the next big thing. And the studio says, no, they want to go with someone who's already known. So they go with Sally Field. I will say a lot of times these name drops, I'm like, what was this story for? But if I had begged to have Meryl Streep star with me and the studio had been like, no, that is a story I would tell for the rest of my life. So they have their first child, Zoe Emily Winkler, September 30th, 1980. And I have to tell you, I don't know if he likes her. If I was Zoe, I'd be quite hurt. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is it's hard to tell if he's like proud of her strong personality or a bit stressed out by her at all times. And I think for a book that is mostly about the way his parents never understood who he was and nurtured him, to have this daughter that he's constantly butting heads with and writing about, I am like, wait, I thought the worst thing a person could do is like not be that nice to their kid. Yeah, he brings up more stories later, but it seems like every time he brings up his daughter Zoe, it's about what a nightmare she was as a teenager and even as a baby. And even Stacy later, we'll get to it, is like, yeah, there's a lot of problems with Henry. Like, he'd be really offended by a child. Like, his feelings would get so hurt by our daughter who was two. And I didn't know how to say, well, she's two. But it, it continues until the end of the book. And it's odd. It never feels resolved. It, I would be so hurt if I was her because he does not talk that way about his son. No, he does not. Also, at this point, Ron officially decides to venture into directing. And I just think that this line is very cute. Ron says... What do you think about me directing? And Henry says, are you kidding? I think you're so powerful. If you wanted to be a brain surgeon, I'd be the first patient, whether I needed brain surgery or not. That's how I feel about you. Oh, my God. Because I love you back, I would never do brain surgery on you. Thank you. I do think I would come and hang. At my surgery? Even after. Do you think they would let you dress up? Scrubbing? hmm I could ask. I know a lot of doctors. I think I could pull some strings. Would you want me there or no? Um, I think I'd be pretty self-conscious, but I think if you were getting brain surgery, I'd want to see the inside of your head so bad. You could. Thank you. So when Zoe was born, he is still shooting Happy Days, and his wife is pregnant, and he's like, make sure that your parents are available on Friday night just in case she's born on a Friday night. And Stacy's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he's like, I shoot a show on a Friday night. And like, luckily, Zoe was born on a Tuesday, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But I will say... Like, Stacy talks a few times being like, I understood acting would always come first. I understood that, like, this is the most important thing to him. But at a certain point, maybe that's something we actually shouldn't understand. If he had not been present at his daughter's birth to film an episode of Happy Days, I would have a very different opinion on this book. And even the fact that he, like, pitched that as a suggestion, I think he's very charming and sweet. But there are certain elements later in life that he really starts to fall apart for me. Scott Bayo joins Happy Days. He has nothing but good things to say about him. He also has a passion for gardening, which is something I thought Claire would like. I really did love that story, actually. (laughs) I chose to brush over it, but regretfully so. He has simple pleasures, and he finds that to be so important. They brought, like, one small plant with them from Germany, and everyone in their neighborhood took little slices of the tree, and he has a tree, and I think that that's actually the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And sometimes I think about the incredible, simple complexities of gardening and the time it takes, and I am brought to tears. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing to do but be consistent for years. There's nothing but time. You must cultivate. I think that's the most beautiful thing in the world. So then he does Night Shift with Ron, which was Ron's, like, first big movie. 
He directed. It went well. He feels so grateful that Ron included him. He really loves Ron. He cried for real when Ron came back for a last episode to say goodbye forever. And he's really stewing in the fact that as much as he would like to be doing projects outside of Happy Days, nobody wants him for anything besides the Fonz. Yeah, he says, I had become a prisoner of my own creation. Where typecasting was concerned, I thought I was going to be able to beat the system. I thought, this is going to sound arrogant, and maybe I was a little arrogant then. I was a big enough international star that could go from mountaintop to mountaintop in my career. I would beat the system of being typecast. What I learned is there is no beating the system. Happy Days ends in 84, and he has nowhere to go. People are like, well, how could we cast you in something else? You're the Fonz. And he was like, well, I'm actually Henry. And they were like, not to us, bitch. No, you're not. He's always calling his agents, being like, anything for me? And they'd be like, nope, we've read everything. Nothing for you. So he, like, loves working as an actor, but he also has this incredible crippling financial fear that they're about to lose everything. He's always sure they're on the brink of financial ruin, and it seems like they never are. But it's very clear that things are not going to come quickly for him. He goes through quite a lull, and he says the best thing anyone ever did for him was set up a production company. So he starts producing. He picks a guy to be his producing partner, and that is a nightmare because he actually hates this man with every fiber of his being, enough to write several times in this book that working with him was the worst thing that ever happened to him. John Rich. John Rich was one of the worst people I ever met in any country in all my years, but you know what? I was part of the problem. I had so little sense of myself that I let him walk all over me. It seems like he walked all over everybody, that he was just an asshole. He talks about following John Rich around and just putting band-aids over every problem on set. And the example he gives is like John Rich would call some guy on a crew an asshole. And the crew would go, what'd you say to me? And Henry would go, he said you're an empty vessel to cover. And I was like, that's not nice. I actually think I'd rather be called an asshole than an empty vessel. Me too. I feel like calling someone an empty vessel is one of the cruelest things I've ever heard. (laughs) Like, yeah, anyone can be an asshole, but to be an empty vessel is like unfixable. You can't fill an empty vessel. So he had a bunch of flops, but one of his huge wins was MacGyver. Yeah, did you know Henry Winkler produced MacGyver? Of course I didn't know that, and I barely know MacGyver. I only know MacGruber, the SNL parody, but... <laughs> but you know that MacGruber had to make fun of something, and for it to be a well-understood joke, the thing that it is making fun of had to be quite famous. Oh, I knew, and he said the guy who played MacGyver was one of the hottest guys in the world. And I, I believe would, it. I want to Google it, because I guess it wasn't... Who played it on SNL? Will Forte. Not the hottest guy in the world. But a cutie. The way Henry Winkler dedicates, like, more time to talking about how hot MacGyver was than he does to thinking of nice things to say about his daughter, I'm like, I gotta see this guy. So he's a producer. I will say one of my big questions going into this book is what happened between Happy Days and Arrested Development because he did have mountaintops, but there was valleys. All of the money he made, I think, was off of producing. Like, he did not do well as an actor again until Barry, I think. Yeah. He was in things. He definitely, I mean, he had movie roles. I think he, like, made solid money And he also was directing a good amount. And doing a lot of voice acting. He acts like that was really hard for him, too, though, to break into. I think that voice acting was really hard for him because he couldn't read and you can't improvise when you're voice acting. But I don't know that it was hard for him to break into. I think it was hard for, like, him to do. When he broke into voice acting, he says he was very honored that people were so patient with him. Sometimes if there was a paragraph to get through, It was like climbing a mountain, but slowly I made it up each hill. He found out at 34 that he was dyslexic. He doesn't really talk about that diagnosis in the way that I wanted him to, I think, because it was such a heavy part of his life and having dyslexia and understanding his dyslexia is such a part of his adulthood. I guess I thought there'd be a distinct before and after, and there is not at all in this book. We kind of blow right past it, and then later he's like, oh, by the way, when I was 34, I found out I was dyslexic because my son... Jed was diagnosed as dyslexic. It, like, broke everything open for me. But that is, like, 
in retrospect. He feels like his career is flatlining. That's literally what he says about it. And he's not getting roles. Meanwhile, he's a stay-at-home dad. He has three kids, Zoe and Max, and then his stepson, Jed. And he said, I worked hard to be a good dad. Every day growing up, I thought, I'm going to be a different parent than my own parents. As I tried to put that into effect, there were some hiccups. On the one hand, I really made sure that I was present. On the other hand, I was infamous at home and elsewhere for being willing to give advice about almost everything at the drop of the hat. As our children grew up, I could practically see them thinking, I know this. Why is he telling me this? And it's hard to be a parent when you don't feel fully adult inside. He talks too much. At one point, Zoe looks to their mom and says, why did you marry him? I can't listen to his voice anymore. Stacy says, it took me a long time to understand that the need that makes someone choose to be an actor to put themselves out there meant that his life, our life, constantly depended upon people, strangers liking what he did. It wasn't always easy. So he becomes a director, and this is his big lesson, which I think is a good lesson as a director. The myth is that if you are a director, you have to know everything. Bullshit. If you take an idea from the crew, you're still the director. And the boom man who came up with that neat little idea is now holding the boom with pride. He's part of the process. He feels great. I feel great. Mark Flanagan feels great because his idea has come to fruition. Everybody wins instead of I'm the director and nobody has an idea but me. Because as the director, you have to answer 900 questions every 32 minutes. If you can't work cooperatively, you're dust. I guess I do think I like notice people in positions of power my entire life who feel that if they listen to someone around them and like at me too, not that I'm in a position of power, but sometimes you feel like if someone else has an idea, you're like, well, then why don't they have this job? If I show weakness, aka I don't know one thing, then like they'll take this job away from me and give it to someone else. And it's like, that is not true. Lead good. Mm -hmm. So he's on this directing kick. He directed Dolly Parton's A Smoky Mountain Christmas. And then he gets to make this movie that he's really excited about with Bette Medler. And as they're working on it, he gets a call up from Jeffrey Katzenberg, who you can't say no to, to direct this movie called Turner and Hooch about Tom Hanks being a detective with a dog. (laughs) And he's like, I just didn't get the movie, but I couldn't say no to Jeffrey Katzenberg. Part of me wonders what's there to get, but I guess there was something to get. Can I say, from what I can tell from the next few projects he embarks on, it seems like in the 80s there was just like a lot of movies where two unlikely people or dogs or anything become co-detectives. Like, I just think that there were so many police movies where they were like, what are the most unlikely friends? Now imagine those unlikely friends become cops. <laughs> like, it just seems like he was a part of so many fucking unlikely cop movies. Yeah. Anyway, he didn't get it. It wasn't going well. He gets called into the office and gets fired. And he felt bad. It was a real hit to the ego to be spotted having been fired off Turner and Hooch. And then he goes back to hating his parents. And Stacy's like, at first, I didn't get it. It took me a really long time to understand how much he hated them, but he hated them. For years, they would come to town for two weeks. They wanted to come as long as possible. And he would be like, no, just don't be here that long. It sucks. And she would always be like, they're your parents. And it seems like she was always very close with her parents. My mother-in-law had no boundaries. She would walk by people and just bump into them. We had French doors leading into our bedroom. and We never locked them. The first time they came to stay with us, Ilse marched right in and got in bed next to Henry. I mean, that's crazy. (laughs) We locked the doors after that. And whenever Henry's parents visited, we would watch from our bed as the door handles jiggled. It was like a horror movie. That is such a funny visual that I feel like I will steal at one point in my life. Just in bed watching people try to get into your room. Not because they're going to kill you, but because of boundarylessness. That's funny. That is funny. He just has a really hard time understanding his own relationship with his parents. He really never forgives them. At one point, his mom has a stroke, and Stacy's like, you have to go to New York and be with her. And he's like, why? And then he goes, and he looks through her stuff and finds all of these letters from Germany that she had kept. And he's like, ugh, when everyone in her family disappeared in Germany, a part of her disappeared too. 
After she died, I found out that when I was very young, she'd been hospitalized for depression. Of course, no one ever talked about it. She never got over the lie that my father had told her to get her to leave Germany. And after that, there were many more lies. You gotta find some compassion, Henry. Everyone in her family died in the Holocaust. You don't know why she said... <laughs> I mean, Henry, part of growing up is forgiving and understanding that your parents are people too. I understand they were very hard on you. You must in your heart understand how hard the Holocaust was. <laughs> I feel that that's not a leap. He could have known. Yeah, I, you, I didn't find out until later that my mom was sad that everyone she ever knew and loved was murdered. <laughs> Nobody talked about it. I couldn't have guessed. Could have been her too, but her lying shitty husband decepted her one time. You know what we skipped that actually was one of the biggest shocks of this book? What? When Henry was 16, his dad really wanted him to take over the lumber business, so he sent him back to Germany to learn the business from that country. And I was like, what do you mean you sent your Jewish son back to Germany? In the 80s. That feels so suit. It was like in the 60s, maybe. Because I think Henry was like 16. Oh, it was in the 60s. It's like, yeah, in the just- 80s, he was married with kids. Yeah. In the 60s. I mean, it was less than 20 years after World War II ended. He was like, now get back there. I'm sure it's safe now. Insane. <laughs> like going to a restaurant after they're shut down for hygiene issues. You go, well, they got to be clean today. If they were just shut down and reopened, must be actually better this than the it best was. time to go. They sent Jed off to college, and it was very sweet. Stacy was, like, absolutely bereft. He's getting little things. He got Absolute Strangers, a TV movie, where he— Oh, my God, I actually hated the concept of this movie. It was a serious drama based on the pro-choice anti-abortion debate. The story revolved around a comatose pregnant woman who could be saved if the pregnancy was terminated. Oh, God. I played the husband who had to make the decision. You save the alive woman that people know. You don't save the thing no one's even seen. Pretty easy call. I also don't think that many people would like to live knowing that their life caused their own mother's death. Like, I don't... Well, I think that that is actually, like, the origin story for, like, a lot of supervillains, to be honest. I think that we, like, see that all... It's, like, a big movie trope to be, like, this person was, like, raised by a father who hated her because she killed her own mother in childbirth. Oh, yeah, that Ben Affleck movie. (laughs) Where he meets Jennifer Lopez, right? No, Jennifer Lopez is the dead wife. It's about New Jersey. (laughs) Oh, Then he goes in to be like, I feel like if there were aliens on Earth, they would come talk to me first. (laughs) Why not? Two whole years went by before I got my next part. I mean, he really was in quite a valley for maybe 30 years. Yeah. It is crazy that you could have that big of a hit and it still does not guarantee security in any way in this biz. It's like this weird damning thing where, oh, you're too famous now. Yeah. I mean, I do think. It's so important when you're on something like that to be doing side projects every time you get out of there. You have to Michelle Williams it. You have to Diana Agar on it. You have to go to like NYU and knock on some dorm and say, I will do your movie for free. If you want to prove yourself as a serious actress, you have to like go out there and fucking prove it. You have to be like, give me your grittiest, most fucked up, idiotic college idea role. But there are so many people who don't. Like think about how many big TV shows there were when we were teenagers and college and things like that where I haven't seen those people since. Sometimes you do just get one thing. It goes back to our thing of there is no such thing as a big break. There's only seven people who are safe Mm -hmm. in the world. And it's Leonardo DiCaprio, Reese Witherspoon, Oprah. Well, it's it's just you're not safe until you've made enough money that you can keep yourself safe. And so then sometimes you're safe and you can keep working. But like also you're safe because you don't even need to keep working. Then he was in a movie called Cop and a Half. Oh. A kid will only tell them the answer to the murder if they let him be a cop. Awesome. Actually, he directs it with Burt Reynolds. And the joke here is that Burt Reynolds agrees to do it, but to direct him, you're only allowed to give him four pieces of feedback. 
as louder, quieter, faster, slower. That's the only thing you're allowed to say to Burt Reynolds. And Burt Reynolds goes, and I direct the kid. So then Henry Winkler would have to like call Burt over and be like, tell the kid, what if uh, he did it but sad? And Burt would be like, kid, be sad. And then he'd be like, I love that take, but what if the kid uh, turned to you after his third line and be like, kid? And he's like, I had to like direct this child through Burt Reynolds as per his contract. And then at one point, the kid's parent came over and was like, why does my kid have to do so many more takes than Burt Reynolds? And Henry had to be like, well, Burt Reynolds is Burt Reynolds, and I'm trying to get a specific performance out of a kid. And they were like, oh, okay. Okay, and then he goes on to how much he hates Zoe. (laughs) Jed goes to get an internship at Saturday Night Live. I wonder how he got that. From the moment she started to talk, Zoe had never taken any prisoners. And then it's all these stories about how bad Zoe was and how she took advantage of the help. And she was strong. She was empowered. And then he just talks about the things he really loves, which is his dogs. And he talks about the projects he did in between. We don't need to talk about some of these projects that went, some that didn't. He does an episode of things here or there. He does Scream. And at first they're like, oh, we can't put his name on the movie because everyone will be like, oh, the Fonz is in Scream. And then they're like, actually, we would like him to promote the movie. Because people are excited that the Fonz is in Scream. His parents die, and he thinks he doesn't have to go to the funeral. And Stacey's like, yeah, you really have to go to the funeral. It's your literal dad. And then he goes to his mom's funeral and does, like, a funny roast of her, which is a choice. And then his sister gets up there and is like, what are you talking about? That's not what mom was like at all. And he's like, well, we had different moms. Ay. <laughs> he also becomes friends with Adam Sandler, and Adam invites him to one of his famous basketball games. Adam Sandler is famous for having basketball games at his house that are very star-studded. And he doesn't play basketball, so he's like, I was there with the cool kids, but I was still begging to be accepted by the cool kids. And it's like, what cool kids? You're the Fonz. You're invited to this because they thought you were cool. Dude, and then he talks about his kids again, and he's like, meanwhile, we got a call from the principal at Max's school who said he was puking in the alleyway. And Max says he just had a sip of beer. And it turns out, of course, he had left campus and gotten really drunk on vodka. And then he goes, all's well that ends well. In his senior year, my son was given the Hart Award by his class at Crossroads for being a good, thoughtful, available human being, which he remains today. And then the very next sentence is, Zoe continued to make our lives interesting. (laughs) And it was about how bad she was. (laughs) People still weren't breaking down my door for film and TV roles, but I kept working. Keep working. It's always a keep working game. He's like, you just got to stay at it. He says even in his speech when he eventually wins an Emmy is, if you just stay at the table, eventually you'll get the chips. It's also hard to tell, like, how bad things were. It does sound like, obviously, compared to being the Fonz, being the star of a number one TV show for 11 years. I guess it, the well felt dry, but it does seem like he was like, and then I did Waterboy and then I did Scream. I'm like, okay, so then I produced MacGyver. A lot was happening. I think that people were still very interested in him in walk-on roles, and I think he was still making quite a living, mm-hmm. especially when you think about producing and directing and these other projects. He's doing voiceover work, and then he starts writing these books about a dyslexic kid named Hank Zipper. So it seems like there's always a paycheck coming from somewhere. Like, he is too big to fail in that, He even talks about this later. He's like, I could never be down and out because if I walked up to someone, an old man in the street and said, I'm Henry Winkler, they'd go, oh, my God, you're the Fonz. Come to my house and take a warm shower. Like he knows that he is too big to fail. Like he is that one thing was all he needed, but like it's not all he needed in his heart. Mm -hmm. So then shit gets real and Stacy gets breast cancer. And well, no, first, uh, after two years away at college, Zoe came back home. So Zoe wasn't having a good time at college. And then Stacy gets cancer. And Henry was not great. I couldn't process the gigantic news. I was terrified, as I know she was, but I was also scared to share my fear with her. Not my finest hour. 
It's hard to look back and admit who I was at this time, but it's who I was at the time. And then I had to go away for work. I rationalized by telling myself I was earning money needed for considerable treatment that the insurance didn't cover. But in reality, our insurance covered everything. It was just the fib I told myself to allow myself to leave the house. It was a tough time, mainly for Stacy, of course, but also for all of us as a family and for Stacy and me as wife and husband. What a time to abandon your wife. I cannot believe he left to do a project while she was getting chemo. And she says, like, listen, did I want him there? Yes. I wish he hadn't left. But I knew that if I asked him to come home, he would and then he'd resent me. So it was better just to, like, let him do his thing and handle it by myself. Oof. He then is, like, not getting work, really. He's in Clifford the Big Red Dog, and he does win a daytime Emmy for a Clifford the Big Red Dog spinoff. But he's like, oh, daytime Emmy is not the same as a primetime Emmy. And he keeps getting dropped by his agents. He says, like, he keeps getting pushed off to the newest agents. His agents are leaving agencies. It seems like he has a new agent every month, and nobody's calling him with work. Everybody's saying just leave and find somebody who will represent you. But his insecurity is that if these people can't get me work, I'm lucky to have anyone. Of course, that's not true. If you're in a position where somebody's doing nothing for you, this idea that you're lucky to have someone do nothing for you is not true. Yeah. You're better off on your own because at least you're being honest about the situation. Yeah. If it can only go up, you have to get out. So that's how Hank Zipper comes to be. Zipzer. You're dyslexic. Zipzer? I am. (laughs) Can I say? I think I am. (laughs) He's always afraid of money. He has all this time. And somebody's like, why don't you write a fucking children's book? And he's like, I couldn't write a book. I couldn't read a book. So they hook him up with this woman who writes books for you. And sure enough, they build out this character, Hank Zipser, based on Henry Winkler and all the trouble he had. as kind of a, a class clown dyslexic kid. Nobody wants to buy it. And finally, Penguin goes, well, you're a celebrity. We'll buy four. They go on to make like 32 novels. I think 39. That's crazy. And in Britain, they make a TV movie out of it. And with a Christmas special. And then Ron Howard calls him and says, I'm working on this show called Arrested Development. Do you want to come do two episodes? And he ends up playing the lawyer for five seasons. Barry Zuckercorn. That's a goofy guy. I mean, Arrested Development, one of the best that ever did it. And so then this becomes his new kind of calling card. He ends up becoming sort of typecast as authority figures with no authority. He does a couple different projects as like principals and lawyers and these people who are older bumbling people. He becomes the idiot gynecologist on Parks and Rec. He goes on to be in Children's Hospital. He's somebody who just will say yes to almost any work, I think. Yeah. Unless it's like sellouty. He wouldn't do a KFC commercial, for example. But anything else where he's actually an actor. And the funniest thing in the world is he does this show, Children's Hospital, which is like a 15-minute show on... Cartoon Network at midnight, like Adult Swim. And he goes, I didn't get any of the jokes, but I could tell it was good. (laughs) And he keeps doing promotion for it. He's like, it's a pretty zany, wacky comedy. And they have to be like, it's not wacky, it's meta. And he's like, I didn't get it, but I'm sure. I'm sure it was high art. He goes, I didn't get one joke. (laughs) But I gave it my all and they were very talented people. Then he goes, there were such great writers, except for Children's Hospital. That was interesting writers. He talks about working with a lot of first-time directors on a lot of newer and experimental projects. He's like, I think that my style of working, like, lent itself well to new directors, especially because I was too insecure to ever overstep with anyone. I think he does have an inclination that, like, helped him along the way where he will say yes to things if he thinks the person is interesting. Like, he doesn't need someone to have proven themselves in any way for him to say yes to a project. He will say yes to most things especially if there is any interesting vibe there. He also gets really into psychology and he's like, he does a lot of talks about how you, if you have a negative thought, don't put a period on it. 
And by that, it's like, if you say, oh, I'm so bad at this, you end the sentence and then you start the next sentence. And by ending the sentence, you're like welcoming yourself into a spiral of negative paragraph talk. And he goes, what you have to do is out loud say something good. And he's like, I like to think about chocolate bundt cake with chocolate chips and no frosting. And he's like, literally catch yourself and say, I don't believe that. I love chocolate chip. Get out of the negative thought. Yeah. And don't allow yourself to spiral. And it really means like physically stopping yourself from thinking those things. Then he's in Click. He loves that Adam Sandler. He loves Adam Sandler. He actually spoke at Adam Sandler's wedding. And then he also introduces Adam Sandler for his Hollywood Walk of Fame star, which is very interesting because in that section he mentions it was right by my Walk of Fame star. He never mentions getting a Walk of Fame star. And it's very interesting to me that being accepted by the cool kids, like being asked to carry this honor with Adam Sandler is more important to him than getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The fact that Adam Sandler wanted to be introduced by Henry Winkler is the bigger honor to him. His son graduates from USC, and he talks about how, as a calling card, he needed to make a short film right at a college. So they did one, and Henry starred in it, and he asked Jeffrey Tambor to also star in it. So they all star in this film, and he's like, Max was so great. When it comes to kids of well-known showbiz people trying to get in the industry, there's always a debate. Does their last name give them a leg up? Do their connections give them an unfair advantage? Um, Well, let me tell you, I think if I had come out of college trying to do a short film, I don't know that Jeffrey Tambor would have done it for free. The answer always seems to be having a mom or dad who's prominent in the business can get them in the door, but that then they have to prove themselves like everybody else and often have to work harder than anybody else just to prove they're for real. Why are they obsessed with being like, it's actually harder for me? I'm sorry, you cannot tell me that this movie that I'm sure you in some way paid for and then definitely implicitly paid for by getting big name people. His son's first feature by having the Fonz in it, they got it paid for. Yeah. And then he's like, and then it really did badly. But luckily, he got a second chance. And by the fourth chance, he was at TIFF. And I was like, okay, that is just like not what would happen for a normal person. And he's like, he did so good. He's so funny. He's a great leader. Meanwhile, the next thing he says about Zoe is that she's a bitch. (laughs) Then he's like, meanwhile, Zoe is like her mother, strong-minded, fiery-spirited, with a credit card. And she dresses very well, which dovetailed neatly with my persistent money worries. And then she talks about how they used to have battle royales all the time, and Stacey and Zoe fought so bad that it often got Henry in trouble. And later turns out that Zoe is a beloved preschool teacher who has raised $2 million to help children who are, like, at the border being held because they're children of migrants and they're being held by the U.S. government. And he's like, but what was really impressive is the way that Max will get on the phone with me and help me run lines. Because he wasn't such a bitch when he was little. I'm like, ugh, poor Zoe. Poor Zoe. I feel like the thing with Nepo babies that they need to realize is they are getting the criticism that they might only be there because of who their parents are, because they are getting criticism at all. No one is talking about non-Nepo babies as projects at that level at all. They are getting no coverage when they are making just a short film out of college. Those projects are not being discussed in any way. And that's why they're not getting criticism about who their parents are. Oh, my God. And then he talks about how Zoe got married and she was dating this guy who wanted to be an actor. And they broke up because she wanted a family. And then finally he came back and realized that he would give up acting and just become a builder so that they could have a family. They have children who are like 12. Why do we have to talk about Zoe's failure of an actor husband. Meanwhile, your son gets Jeffrey Tambor in his student project. Can't you be like, and now Zoe has a beautiful husband and beautiful children. Instead, it's like, yeah, Zoe's married, but you know, 14 years ago, they broke up. Because he's a loser. Luckily, her husband gave up on his idiotic dreams that everyone in our family accomplished, but uh, he had no talent. (laughs) Not him. Then he got to be in Royal Pains, which was huge. Then he got to be in Parks and Rec. 
And then he talks about Barry for like the rest of the book. Yeah. So very importantly, actually, he is big on therapy, as we said. He had this therapist who he talked to every Monday for years and years and years. And then one day the therapist was like, would you read a script I'm working on? And he was like, fuck, I guess I won't have a therapist. And then he finds a new therapist who like breaks him wide open. At, I think 65 is the first time he ever considered emotional honesty. He talks about running into Robert De Niro years ago when he was the Fonz and then seeing him again. And Robert De Niro remembers him and he says, had I caught up with the cool kids at last? Deep down, I knew part of me was always chasing after the cool kids and never catching them. That was a part of me that had to change. The 10-year-old in me who took up most of the space inside me. Not so easy. So this is the first time he acknowledges that chasing the cool kids is fruitless. And he's constantly referencing this little boy inside. I was uncooked, a little boy inside. I'm sorry. This is something I have no patience for. If you are a man, you are not a little boy. Like, I know everyone still has this, like, unhealed, wounded child inside of them that you have to, like, go to therapy to get in touch with and heal. But you can't make excuses for your behavior as a 60-year-old because you had parents who were mean to you because those parents had survived a, like, horrific trauma. And he says it's so hard for him to explain what's going on inside of him to his wife. She and I bumped up against this again and again, and it was corrosive to our marriage. After almost 40 years together, something in me still couldn't let her in. And this was causing intense pain for both of us. That's a lot. That's a long time to be together before you can open up. And we were talking about this. It is crazy that eventually he did open up and that he was a provider. And he is someone who I believe has a good heart and like wanted to be good and wanted to be there for his family. Because I do think that this was how a lot of men were and are. And they just like die. And they just die. And sometimes they're much meaner. Like sometimes they're much meaner about the way that they won't open up to you. And they're much meaner yeah. about the way that they like ignore you. And Yeah. I mean, his big flaw was that he wanted to make people laugh above all else. But some people's big flaw is that they like drink until they beat you. So <laughs> that's worse. But he starts going to a good therapist. And he says, I slowly realized there is still a lot of little boy in me desperate to try to make everyone in the world love me because my parents didn't seem to. The little boy who knew less than everyone else. And he says, I had to cut that idea off the bones with the Bowie knife. It was hard and it took time, but eventually they started to get through the concrete wall around his heart. Yahoo! And then he gets a call about Barry. Bill Hader and HBO are putting together a show about an assassin. And he is like, HBO? Bill Hader? You mean the two greatest who ever did it? And let me tell you, I agree. I am starting Barry this week, I think. I love that show. I cannot wait. So he gets an audition and he is very excited that Dustin Hoffman isn't even on the list because he's like, I won't get it over Dustin Hoffman. And he reads lines with his son. And of course, he's doing his regular improv thing. And Max is like, why don't you just try respecting writers and not improving? And so he goes in and auditions his little heart out. And then he doesn't hear anything for ages. And then he gets asked to audition again. And he's scared to audition again because he's like, what if I undo the success of my first audition? But they're like, no, just come in here and audition. And he does. And he does well. And then he doesn't hear again for a little bit. And finally, he gets the role. And then he gets an Emmy. And everything goes great. And Stacey comes in and she does this whole thing. I'm like, listen, I've been Henry Winkler's biggest fan for 45 years, but this is the best script he's ever gotten. And he wouldn't have been able to elevate it until today. That like he had to do the work on himself. He had to find himself as an actor. And it did take 75 years. So if you feel stuck, just think it took Henry Winkler 75 years to be good enough for the role that he finally got. Yes. We always talk about that. We always talk about how this we feel is a good idea for a podcast, but we wouldn't have done a good job at it if we had started it as our first podcast. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, he has grown up a lot. Therapy helped. He's so happy at Barry. He's so happy in his life. He loves his little grandchildren. And he's really taken a new look at the Fonz. He meets all these people who to this day are like, I'm able to bond with my parents over the Fonz. He meets with a lot of children who are like autistic, who only like the Fonz in the whole world. I think we see this a lot with actors who are resentful of a certain character about after a certain time, you just go, oh, this means so much to people. And I have to stop being pissed about it because like this was a big deal in your family. And why am I being such an asshole that you want to talk to me? Because it's the last thing you and your dad were ever able to talk about before he died or something. I have gratitude for everything. I love being on this earth. I love everything. I have all these things and I still have them in abundance. And my gratitude is abundant too. And he learns to try activities, things that he never thought he could do, like fly fishing. He tries them and it turns out it's his true calling. He loves fly fishing more than anything, even more than Max. Definitely more than Zoe. (laughs) And Ashley, any final thoughts? You know, I found him to be charming. I found him to try hard. I think that the book was like a little disconnected, just in storytelling. Like I think that the chapters were a little all over the place. To me, it actually felt a lot like Angelica Houston if she had trimmed the fat properly. I liked it. I found it very funny and I think it was very honest and like he is just a flawed person and you can't fix that in a book. You can only acknowledge it retrospectively. And I really admire the way he acknowledges it. Like I think obviously it took a very long time. I wish he had really been there for Stacey's cancer treatment. But hey. But you can't go back in time. All you can do is be there for the next one. Also, wait, can I say I also find it very fascinating and very interesting the keep working of it all because what he loves is working. Like he loves working on projects and he loves acting. And so the fact that, I don't know, there are a lot of people who have not even had one big hit, let alone to have one big hit right out the gate, like your first month in LA, and then have just a 30-year lull. Like a lot of people would have quit. And so to stay at the table and win an Emmy, I actually find so admirable. And it does seem like he made some people's lives a bit hellish in that process. But like he's trying so hard and he knows what he wants and he goes for it. Yeah. I mean, it was a really darling book. I laughed out loud a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm somebody who doesn't even really know him. I love him in Arrested Development and stuff, but I yeah. still enjoyed it. I thought it was a 3.5 out of 5 in terms of fertility. Maybe just a 3. Of the soil? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think it had nuggets. It had really strong nuggets. How many warm teenies would you like to have with Henry Winkler? Um, Two. I'd, uh, I'd love to go on a couple's dinner with him because that's his favorite thing to do with his wife is they yeah. always have couples. I would like three warm teenies. I think that he'd be a really fun person to hang out with for three teenies. And I think he names names. I think he would talk shit. I think he would talk mad shit. And that, but I think after that, I think getting too drunk, I'd say, uh, okay. I think this is a great gift for someone in your life who likes Henry Winkler. Yes. It is cute. And it's funny the way you hope it, it will be. And it's reflective. And it's a quick read. I didn't mind the disjointedness. I felt like... He was painting a picture with many a different brush. Totally. Anyway, who do you love the most? I love our five-star reviewing wormies. Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you, Pulpy Outlet Jewelry. You make the most beautiful jewels anybody's ever seen in the whole wide world. Fit for a queen, some might say. Thank you, Lindsay Des. You are my designated number one, Lindsay. Thank you so much. Peaches by POTUS. If you are squatting every time you're disappointed in the POTUS, oh, you've got the tightest peach in town. Eliz AHJ13, the luckiest number, Eliz, on earth, I would say. DZ Loving in Las Vegas. They say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but not you, my friend. Your review has gone global, and I adore it. That is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I am obsessed with you.